Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we have this morning, Lord willing, and then one more Sunday until we finish the prologue, verses 1 to 18, and then into the heart of this wonderful gospel. So this morning we want to look at the prophet who spoke, the prophet who prepared, and the Christ who came in fulfillment of his ministry. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, help us now. This is your word. These are your thoughts. This is your mind given to us, preserved for us, and we pray that your spirit would accompany its reading and its preaching. Father, I pray that your spirit would take the word from our ears to our minds and to our hearts that we might be affected by it and what we think and in how we love you and in what we do in response to that. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin in verse 14, reading this morning down through verse 18 for context's sake. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained Him. I think it's observable and true in your own experience as well. It's common to humanity. That when important men speak, we listen, don't we? When someone important speaks, we put our radar up, and we listen carefully to what they have to say. However, when great men speak, we not only listen, but we take heed and then we act upon what we hear. The measure of men is oftentimes gauged by the force and the impact of their words and what they are able to accomplish for good or for ill. Men are often remembered by their words. And they are gauged as leaders, as men, by what they are able to accomplish in what they say. It might be argued then that the greatest man to have spoken prior to the Lord Jesus Himself coming on the scene is His cousin, John the Baptist. As John the Baptist issues forth truth, and as John the Baptist comes and he prepares the way for the Messiah, for His cousin, Jesus Christ to walk this earth and to preach the Gospel and to redeem sinners, the the entire pinnacle of human history wrapped up in his life. John was tasked. He was one of those great men, I would argue. He was tasked with a critical mission. It was a daring mission. It wasn't easy. To say the things that John said are certainly not easy. But he had to say them. It couldn't be delegated to anyone else. No, the Lord had a specifically in mind John the Baptist created for this moment. He's like the Esther of his own day. 
for such a time as this, it required a John the Baptist. And the Baptist came and he spoke and he faithfully carried out his ministry to the point of his own death, you remember. For speaking the truth, for confronting the wickedness of his own day and his own age, John the Baptist lost his head. I'll never forget as a child what my parents gave us the legacy of history and and we were I think kind of a history nerd sort of a family and so our vacations were largely around old plantations and battlefields and you name it we went to see it and I can remember I think I was seven or eight years old and we took a trip in the fall that year rather than the summer and we went to Monticello the home of Thomas Jefferson and there in Jefferson's dining room hung a massive portrait of John the Baptist's head. And I can remember as a kid thinking, you eat while you look at this? This is bizarre. Nevertheless, it was there. It was one of his prized pieces of art for whatever weird reason. And that's always stuck with me and it's etched into my memory. John was a man that had to be heard in his day and he was heard to the point that he impacted so much so that They took his own life. But John didn't just need to be heard in his day. He needs to be heard today. And not only does he need to be heard, he needs to be heeded. We need to give special attention to his words. He came as the bridge of a division of history at a particular time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is an introduction into the apex of God's redeeming and saving purposes for Christ, and for the world, which have been prophesied since Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. John is that man. He is that great man whose words not only must be heard, but must move us this morning. His words are truth. His message is like a piercing, fiery arrow. His aim is salvation, and his voice undeniable. And here we find in these two verses three very vivid depictions In his message, number one, a depiction of urgency. Number two, a depiction of supremacy. And three, a depiction of acquisition. If you're taking notes, that's where we're headed. And so I want to begin by looking at a depiction of the urgency in John's ministry and the Baptist's ministry as he cries out as a voice in the wilderness. He he comes on the scene and he appears, doesn't he, with great power? Even if he's a little different than the people of his age, he may be a little different than the prophets before him. I mean, after all, the guy wears camel hair and a belt of leather and he eats locusts and wild honey. That's not your normal preacher. At least it's not this preacher. But he comes and he, he has a sense of power and uniqueness about him. Power that, that only comes from a man who is on a mission. And not just on a mission, but on a mission he believes in. On a mission from one greater than himself to the point that he would give his life because of the mission. He believed in it. And so he comes as that sort of figure in history not to be missed. You know, if we miss the ministry of John the Baptist, we miss something of, I believe, eternal importance. Eternal significance. And yet to everyone who 
reads the Bible and hears the message of John and understands what John is doing, we understand there is something powerful and unique about his words. You know, I think it's perhaps unfortunate, but John the Baptist, in in our understandable rush to get to Jesus, is often overlooked, and he shouldn't be. You know, we're we're in a hurry to get to Jesus. We're in a hurry. Once we start the New Testament, we're like, let's get to the point. Let's run to Christ, which is good, as we should. But we shouldn't ignore the road that God laid before him either. Because it's not simply filler material of a finely constructed, you know, literary character who's round in nature, developed, you know, colorful no, he, he matters. He's not just there to fill and to make the story of Jesus more colorful. He actually has a message. He, he's a herald, and like heralds before him, he's keenly aware that he's here for a reason. And his message needs to be heard, and it must be heard. If we were to say one thing about John, in, in, in contradiction and distinction from modern preachers, it's this. Ambiguity is gone with John. It's either black or it's white. You're either in or you're out. I asked the question not long ago, when did nuance and ambiguity become a virtue? Have you noticed that? Have you noticed? I I don't care where you are in the world today. But you ask somebody a question, well, you know, I get to the point, man. Yes or no. But but ambiguity seems to plague us, doesn't it? Nuance. Well, we knew you can nuance everything to death. Sometimes it just needs to be said, and John comes as one who's just going to say it. He's just going to shoot straight. He's going to tell you the truth. It's not his message. It's God's message that he gave John to give to you. And so therefore, hey, I can say it. and Don't get mad at me. Get mad at the one who sent me. John's just unambiguous. He's, He's really refreshing in that way. As was Jesus. There was no, you know, ambiguity. There was no... Uh, confusion when Jesus or John speak. He is a witness of the light that in brightening its subjects gives great clarity. John does that. And John the Apostle, who's writing about John the Baptist, I can get a little confusing, I understand that. But John the Apostle, in writing the Gospel of John about his namesake, John the Baptist here, gives us a sense of the heightened urgency in the Baptist's statement. Notice what the text says. John testified about him. Now, to us, we may read that and we say, that's kind of nondescript. Yay. He told us about him. He testified about him. We've seen witnesses on uh, the stand in trials, and we say, okay, that's what it means to testify about something, you know. Um, It can get dry. It can get boring. Sometimes it's exciting, but... A lot of times, witnesses, it's just dry and boring courtroom drama, isn't it? About minutiae and details, and it's mind-numbing. Was that what is meant when John the Apostle writes of John the Baptist that he testified about Jesus? Was it lackluster? Was it boring? Was it dry? Was it flat? Not at all. Not at all. Because what we, in a essence are saying what what the text is saying here is that the baptist told stories about a messiah who these poor jewish people had been waiting for centuries to show up 
He tells them these stories. He prepares the way for them in order to enlighten their minds, in order to spark their passion, in order to prepare them because they were tired and weary of waiting. He doesn't just come and testify more dry, boring detail. He comes to inflame them. They, frankly, by the time John the Baptist is on the scene, let's be honest, they'd lost interest. They had lost much of the Old Testament. How do we know that? Well, they felt it was so inadequate and they were so weary of waiting on the promises of God that they constructed what would become known as Judaism. That is not the same thing as the Old Testament. Don't, by the way, don't confuse those two things. The Judaism that Paul has to combat, the Judaism that Jesus has to combat is not the religion of Moses. They had added to the law. They had tweaked the law they had made loopholes in the law that they were tired of waiting they were restless they were weary and so john the baptist is sent to that type of a person to draw their minds to christ to inflame their hearts to prepare them for the coming of the messiah in fact so tired of waiting had the Jewish people become that it wasn't uncommon in the 400 years between Malachi and John the Baptist coming on the scene known as the intertestamental period or the period of silence, that many times men would arise and they would say, hey, I'm the Messiah. Often it happened over the Passover week. And so when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, many people are thinking, oh, he's just another one of them. But for 400 years, you had had many, many occurrences of men saying okay enough we've waited long enough i'm the messiah and they would lead revolutions and 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 you read about some of these the maccabees is probably the most famous and so they would lead these and and john comes at a time when that is all going on and he's saying listen i know you're tired of waiting i know you're weary of waiting i know you've taken tried to take at least history into your own hands but listen he really is here What's unique about John is this. John didn't say, and I'm him. John says, it's one greater than I. I may be a great prophet. I may be a great orator. I may proclaim with great power and authority, but I am not he. He is he. Jesus of Nazareth is he. And so he comes with a great urgency. He himself is inflamed by the message and he seeks to inflame his listeners in his day. In fact, the Baptist is recorded as employing, as as I mentioned, very distinct methods to grab you by the ears and to grab people in his own days by the ears. The way he dressed. The way he spoke. You, you, You remember, this is said of Jesus as well, but... What was one of the things that got Jesus into trouble with the Pharisees? Because when they listened to Jesus talk, he taught them as one having what? Authority. Not like one of their own scribes. He wasn't a smooth-talking politician who talked for an hour and said nothing. He spoke with authority. And John, before him, spoke with authority and it grabbed the attention. Here's this weirdly dressed guy who speaks with authority, who speaks with passion, who speaks like he knows the God he talks about. This is not normal. 
oh, Christian, wouldn't it be great if we would all commit to be the kind of people who spoke like that, who lived like that, that the world around us said, there's something different about them. That's not normal. It's good to be abnormal sometimes. I've always been accused of being a little strange. But in this case, it's good. John is different. He's meant to grab the attention, both in his mannerisms, both in his words. It's an intensified reminder. The Apostle John, in writing this, is communicating that the Baptist's message was, again, not about himself, but is about the Word. And it's written in such a way that, that the language communicates. He didn't just preach two or three times and then say, okay, I've done my job, I'll go home. This was his life. It was repeated. It was constant. Everywhere he goes, the Baptist is looking for an audience to proclaim the Messiah to. He didn't just, hey, that's sufficient, we'll be done now. Things are getting a little heated, I'll back off. Let me just move to another location because, hey, after all, I've told him once. No, it's repeated. The Baptist in his testifying repeatedly testifies. In fact, the point is this, quite honestly and frankly, what John the Baptist said in his day still needs to be said today. It's written in such a way in the, the, the Greek verb here that it's communicating this is something that must continually be preached. And John never stopped, not until his dying breath. John, with unending proclamation, prophesied about the Word, the living Word, the Messiah who was coming after him. Notice what the text says. John testified about him and cried out about him. This is speech, by the way, that doesn't come because he read a book about the Messiah. This is language that has been convinced by personal experience. Convinced by personal experience that this is the Messiah. You know, it's one thing to read a book. It's another thing to grasp the truth of a book by personal experience. Have you all lived that? I'm sure we all have at some point in some way. It's one thing to hear somebody talk about it. It's another thing to go and do it for yourself. I think an interesting opportunity we have that's unique to our generation, our our lifetime, the point in history we live in is podcasts. I I like books. Some of you have already seen the new office and the new space going in behind us, and you've commented, man, you have a lot of books. Yes, I like books. But you know what's better than a history book? Somebody who wrote an autobiography who comes on a podcast and they tell you about it. You're not just getting flat words on a page. You're getting the emotion. You're getting the the backstory. You're getting the color commentary as you go. And that's John here. John is not just simply saying, hey, I read a book about this guy who supposedly is going to be the Messiah. I am here to tell you I know him personally. And let me tell you what it's like to know him personally. It is inexplicable. It is undescribable to know this man, Jesus of Nazareth. How how much did 
John really believed that? How, how much of his life was actually impacted? All you've got to do is go back to Luke. Because when John the Baptist is in the womb of his mother Elizabeth and Jesus is in the womb of his mother Mary and the two cousins, Elizabeth and Mary, get together, John the Baptist jumps in his mother's womb. At the very reality that he is in the presence of the Messiah. Think about that. Preborn life is already reacting to the truth. John doesn't just read books about Jesus, he knows Jesus. And by the time he reaches adulthood, doubtless they had spent time together. John had no doubt observed his cousin's life and his early development as Jesus, according to Luke, grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man. John watched that happening. So when John comes on the scene into adulthood and he begins to preach, John knows he is gripped by the Messiah. He's not a milky, toasty preacher who read somewhere in some dry theological journal about the Messiah. John knows him. And like Jesus to Lazarus' family, as I mentioned yesterday in Mimi's celebration of life service, Jesus ends that great treatise, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet will he live. Do you believe this? I didn't ask if your parents believe it. I didn't ask if our church confesses that. I didn't ask if your spouse believes it. Do you believe it? And that's how John comes. And that's how John is preaching. He's gripped by the truth of Jesus. And listen, dry and dusty Christianity is a contradiction. If you know Jesus, something about you ought to change. I love R.C. Sproul. There's some things that only R.C. can say. And some of you know those things. But one of the statements that has stuck with me over the years is this. Dispassionate preaching is a lie. A boring preacher is a lie. John the Baptist was not a boring preacher because he knew the truth. He was moved by the truth. He was a great man because he knew great truth. And he proclaimed it that way. And so John testifies about him. It's a conclusive reminder, this testimony that John gives. That it's not only powerful, it's not only passionate, it's conclusive. We've all been in those discussions where we have definitively been told that the last word to be uttered will not be ours. Have you been in those discussions? You remember growing up for you adults, your parents, <laughs> there's some debate going on, and your parent says, nope, stop, not another word. And then they tell you the final word on the matter. That's it. Case closed. And you try to, you know, proffer some brilliant legal response. And this is what you get? Nope. Mm -mm, nope, 
I've had the final. You don't get the final word. I do. That's John. He comes not only with, with, with his passionate preaching, but this conclusive preaching. He has the last word. He's giving you the final opinion about who Jesus is. This, there is nothing to be added to this. It's like the Supreme Court ruling on something. There's no higher court to appeal to now. It's done. It's in stone. It's over. Case closed. John, when he cries out, cries out in that way. He is conclusive. It's the sum of the matter. If Solomon would have said in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Let's sum up life once and for all. Fear God, keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That's it. And John is that type of a voice here. The voice of his crying out is the forceful crying out. Notice what the text says. He cries out. He doesn't just say it. He cries out. Now think about in your mind all the times that Scripture also uses that phrase. He cried out. Jesus on the cross, most importantly, right? Jesus with loud voice cries out what? It is finished. It's done. No more word to be offered here. I have the last word. John, in the same spirit, in the same way, is saying what I say about Jesus is the final word. He is Messiah. He is the full revelation of grace and truth. He is the full revelation of God. You need nothing else. What Moses asked for in Exodus 33, 18, Lord, show me your glory, is now answered in the face of Jesus Christ. It's done. And don't debate me on the matter because you can't. He's not speaking merely for his own benefit or even out of the benefit of a, of a few who might buy into his message and what he is selling, so to say. His proclamation is loud and it's authoritative and it is total and it will be heard. So many attempts are made to silence and have been, haven't they, over the course of the history of the church to silence the truth? You can't say that. Hey, that's against the law. You can't preach that. In the apostles' day, the courts, you're not allowed to preach. To Paul, you can't preach here. You can't say that. You're not welcome in this city. We're going to stone you to death for preaching. Following in the spirit of John, they proclaimed a message that will be heard. Whether you want to hear it or not, it is the conclusive matter and you will hear it. By hook or by crook, one way or the other, you will be exposed to this truth. And by the way, the reason they're rejecting truth is because they've already been exposed by enough truth to cause an allergy to more truth. And they don't like it. It's like throwing acid in someone's eyes. They don't like the truth already revealed to them in nature and in conscience and in whatever uh, uh, exposure to the word they've already had. They don't like it, therefore they will reject it. But John in his crying out, the, the, the sense of the word here is that it is so urgent, so critical, it will be heard whether you want to hear it or not. Paul tells Timothy while he's imprisoned, I may be bound, but the word of God is never bound. It will be heard. John Bunyan in writing from prison. And by the way, 
you got to understand Pilgrim's Progress, that's a prison book. And John the Bunyan was told multiple times, if you promise you won't preach anymore, we'll let you out of prison. And his response was always for 12 years, you let me out and the first thing I'll do is preach. Why? He told his captors the same thing Paul told Timothy. I may be bound, but the word of God will never be bound. It will be heard. That's John's heart. That's John's persona. That's John's driving passion. There's nothing more that can be said. Truth will be heard, and it will be unalterably heard. You will not tamper with the message. You will not tamper with Christ. He is who He is. He always will be, and He's coming in full power and demonstration of grace and truth. So what follows is the truth then in the the remainder of these two verses is the truth that John so desperately needs to communicate to us. And that brings us to the second point. There is a depiction of supremacy. Listen to the words of the Baptist about himself. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I. For he existed before me. He speaks, as it were, in past tense language. Not in the sense that truth has been done away with, or that truth has lost its importance or its vitality, but in the reality that this is what has been being proclaimed the entire time. That the Messiah is greater. That the Messiah is eternal. In fact, uh, let's just go back in John chapter 1 very quickly, and let's just survey this. Let's, let's check John the Baptist and see if his homework was right. In the, be, in the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. When was that? Well, that was before anything else, before time, before matter, before history. There's the Word. And John says, that's who I'm talking about. In verse 4, we read this. In him was life, and life, and the life was the light of men. You know, you have to predate something to give it life, yes? The parent comes first, not the child. The creator comes first, not the creation. And verse 4 is telling us simply that Jesus, the Word, the living Word, has existed so long that everything else in our experience, everything else in the universe is a result of his existence before it. And John's giving credence to that in verses 9 and 10. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. But that doesn't change the fact that he's been there. The reason for the world existing in the first place is the fact that he is there and always has been there. And so there's this this magnification of Christ, this glorifying of Jesus because He is eternal. And so that just sounds kind of dry and boring and dusty to me. What does it matter? Okay, so fine, Jesus is eternal. Let me tell you when it really matters. Besides all the time you'll know it really matters. You will be glad that it matters. On the day when you hold your loved one's funeral, 
who place their faith in Jesus. On that day, you will be glad that the life that was in them is not ended by a hole in the ground. That hole in the ground does not have the final word because the life that is in them is the life of Jesus coursing in their veins and that life has never had a beginning and it will never have an ending and that is life eternal and they are living now that reality. It matters. It matters. And John says he's greater than me because he existed before me. That is to say, before the very foundation of the world, he has existed. He always has been, he is, and he always will be. This is critical, brothers and sisters. It is part and parcel to, to everything else you may think about the, the Gospel of John, particularly you know, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him might have eternal life. You know why you have eternal life? Because He's eternal. So don't skip the cause of all of that. The cause of our eternal life is an eternal Savior. And so John is emphasizing that here as he is preaching. What follows then is even more critical to our understanding. As Leon Morris, who has written a commentary on the Gospel of John, says that we now move from the aspect of time to that of importance. He ranks higher than me. Because of the aspect of time, we now get to the aspect of importance. What really matters? And what matters is that because of the, the time issue and because Jesus has always existed, that means He's better than me, greater than me, greater than all. And the Baptist introduces an inverted truth to these Jewish people. He turns their world upside down. Maybe you're one of those people. You've heard a sermon. You can sit here and think about that. Maybe at some point in your life you heard a sermon that just absolutely turned your world upside down. It just rocked your world. I could probably take you to two or three like that in my lifetime. You hear and it's like, I never thought about that. Never saw that. Oh, praise God, that's true. In the Jewish mind and in the ancient Near East, and by the way, I love Western society, I love Western culture, but sometimes I look at it and I go, it's just plain foolish. We value youth and vitality and a carefree life. You know what they value in the East still to this day? And when I say East, from the Middle East all the way over through Asia? Culturally, they value age and wisdom. That has a higher place in society. They're the ones who are honored. Not the young, vibrant athlete who really has nothing of substance to say, but the old grandmother and grandfather who have everything to say. And so it is to that type of mind that John is speaking. The... the, the the, the person who was there first, the, the one who has lived the longest, the one who has the most experience. That's who you want to hear from, right? And John is saying, well, then here he is. He existed before anyone. He's the supreme one that, that you want to hear from. And, and you know, 
brothers and sisters, when the most critical things in life are upon us, that's what we want, isn't it? I remember when the time was coming for Nicole to deliver Julianne. We knew it would be a C-section. We knew all those things. And so the doctor says, look, you can, you can deliver at this hospital or you can deliver at this hospital. All right, doc, what's the advantage? Well, this hospital has new facilities. They're beautiful. They're the most modern, you know, whatever. What's the disadvantage? The nurses there have two or three years experience. What about the other hospital? Well, the facilities are, are very not, I mean, they're very good. They're very adequate. They're, they're up to date technologically and all of that sort of thing. But the real advantage is this. The nurses there have an average tenure of over 20 years. We'll take that one. When my life is on the operating table, when my child's life is online, give me experience, right? Give me the one who knows, who's been there, who's seen it all, who's done it all. That's what I want. And John is saying to these, to these Jewish people, listen, that is who the Messiah is. But wait a minute, wasn't he born to Mary? Yes, he was. But he's existed a lot longer than that night in Bethlehem. He is eternal. And so the world is kind of flipped upside down. Here's this young man. Jesus is young at the time. And, and yet you're telling me he ranks above all of us, all of these ancient Pharisees, and even you, John? Yes, that's what I'm telling you. As Leon Morris puts it, these Jewish people really did believe in the good old days. Age mattered. Wisdom and experience mattered. And so John says, listen, I'm crying out, and here's why you should listen to him, because he has existed before me, therefore he has a higher rank than me, he is better than all of us. And you need to listen. He must be heard, he will be heard. He, he will have the final word. The word outranks everyone, and he outranks everything by virtue of his presence before time began, outside of time, and over time. I, I just think one of the most comforting, exciting, challenging exercises for a Christian is to think about God's eternality. Before time, unaffected by time, Lord of time. You start to dwell on what the impacts of that reality is. It's endless. And John says, listen, here's why he has to be heard. He simply outranks all of us. He is supreme over us. And so John is exploding their paradigms. He's just blowing them up one after another with the truth that Christ, the word, this man, Jesus of Nazareth before them is the source of everything, including them. Jesus could tell them to the absolute one one millionth of an inch how long their femur was because he made it. He could tell you what your blood type is because he created you. He could tell you everything about these people that are rejecting him. And John's saying, you know, I wouldn't do that if I were you. He's before you and he's over you and he is sovereign in you as your creator. The word outranks you in might, priority of status, and time, according to one writer. No one 
is greater. And so how did John respond to these truths? How do we need to respond to these truths? Just flip over a couple of chapters to John chapter 3 and verse 30. As John contemplates these realities, he comes to this conclusion, and this is what he issues forth. He must increase. I must decrease. Do you want to hear the gospel of John in an efficacious way, in a way that impacts your life, in a way that is helpful to you? Then you'll hear it this way. You must approach it this way first. Christ must increase. You must decrease. He must be elevated. You must be humbled. If you don't hear it with that heart and with that mindset going into it, you'll not hear the saving power of this great gospel. You must be humbled. And John has come in order to humble them by these realities. We need desperately to reclaim this biblical view of Jesus. You know, too often today, Jesus is presented as a partner, a sidekick. One who is equal to us in authority and power, yet slightly elevated above us in ability. He can walk on water, we can't. But when it comes to a vote, Jesus, it's a 50-50 deal. You get half the say, I get half the say, but we'll toss a coin. That's how the world treats Jesus. But that is not how John wants you to treat Jesus. John wants you to know he is higher than you. He outranks you. And you must humble yourself under Him. He supremely outranks us. He has no equals and He tolerates no would-be rivals. He'll destroy them all. He is supreme Lord. Eternal One. And brothers and sisters, let me just say, unless you grasp that picture, unless you see the loftiness and the beauty and the glory and the majesty and the supremacy of Jesus that makes Him untouchable, you don't get the rest of the book. It won't mean anything. If you see at the same time Jesus as being uncaring and out of touch and so out of our world that it doesn't matter, you won't get the rest of the book. That's the miracle here. He is this majestic, exalted, sovereign, but He's come to live with us. To feel our humanity. To undergo our temptation so that He might carry our burdens. That is the miracle. That is transforming. John says you've got to grasp it. But then lastly, There's a depiction of an acquisition that occurs. Notice what he says in verse 16. For of his fullness. Just stop and chew on that for a bit. We have all received. There's the acquisition. And what have we received, John? What is it that we... Grace upon grace. And if we were to continue that out, we would just continue to say upon grace, upon grace, upon grace, upon grace for all eternity. And coming as He was and is, we receive grace upon grace. We receive Him. You know, think about this. Jesus didn't come because He needed anything. 
He didn't come because there was some, something lacking in him eternally to where he needed to come and accomplish something in order that he could be, you know, elevated within the Trinity. None of that. He was fully God. He was perfect. Nothing could be added to him. But he came in order that we might receive. Not that he would receive, that we would receive. He didn't need any, the one who needs nothing, the one who created everything, came that we might receive. Is that humbling? Man, it should be. It absolutely ought to bring us to our knees. We, we received what we could not acquire by any other means. There's no plan B, there's no optional road. It's not a you choose book where if you choose the right thing, we'll take you down this path and the story ends differently. No, 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 none of that. We absolutely had no ability to receive what we desperately needed apart from Jesus. And he comes to fill us up. No, no, no Bible commentators debate. They say, well, what, what exactly does that term fullness mean here? Does it mean the fullness of Christ, or does it mean that Christ fills us? And I have an unbelievable, groundbreaking, scholarly answer for you. Yes. Yes. It refers to both. Both all that is in Christ, all that He is, full of grace and truth, and all of that being poured into us. We've received that. The word fully and truly God has come in everything that He is that that might fill us up. So that we have need of nothing. We don't lack anything. Just as Christ Himself lacks nothing, when Christ fills us, we lack nothing. Christ is in us. He is our hope of glory. Christ is not exalted as the Christ that John speaks of, then he has nothing more to give than what any other human being could give as great as they are. But because he is who he is, he can give what no one else can. He is the greatest of men because he is the God-man. Great men move us by their words. Christ, more than any, the living word came and moves us in ways that no other men could. One of my favorite places on this planet to visit is the Ronald Reagan Library in California. And I moved every single time I walk. I mean, I've been there many, many times. And every time I walk through and you hear his voice, you are moved. You, I mean, I get goosebumps every time I go. And every time I leave, there's always a little sweat drop coming right here. Because it, the last exhibit takes you through the final week of his uh, burial 
ceremonies. And you hear people giving tribute to him. Margaret Thatcher. Miguel Gorbachev. Others. And you're moved. And you think, this was a great man. Let's, let's go! But you know, after a couple of hours driving in L.A. traffic, you kind of forget about all that. But Jesus isn't like that. When he speaks and he moves men, he moves them for eternity. No one moves like Jesus because no one is Jesus and no one has come to do what Jesus has done. And John says, listen, do you know what you have here? This is not merely a a, a, a pep speech at a museum somewhere. This is grace upon grace from heaven itself. Grace that knows no end. That has been poured into you and that fills you up. Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And John says, that is who is in you. Do you get that? That's who's in you. Christian, listen. Know what you possess. Know what is yours in Christ. Because He is in you. We have all been filled and received this grace upon grace. It literally is grace without end. Grace without end. Grace upon grace. From the fullness that is in Jesus, the living Word, we have been filled and we receive an unending stream. You know, I guess it's human nature. We measure our lives so often in such temporal ways, don't we? The most earthly ways, the most perishable ways is how we measure our lives. Parents speak of their children in stages, right? There's the birth to toddler stage. There's the toddler to elementary age. There's the elementary to teen years. There's the teen years into young adulthood. And then there's the single to married paradigm. Then there's career to retirement paradigm. And ultimately we talk about life to death. One little dash in between two sets of numbers. That's all we have. Unless the Word has filled us. And then our lives are not measured in such temporal ways. They are measured this way. From grace to grace to grace to grace to grace to grace. John Newton got it. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. But it's grace that leads me home. And John says, that's 
the outpouring of the word himself. That's the result of his life. That's the result of his ministry. It is literally receiving without end into eternity grace upon grace. I don't know, maybe one of the songs we'll sing in heaven is grace greater than our sin. Maybe we'll never, maybe there'll just be a button, replay, loop that thing. Keep it going. You know, in Baptist parlance, one more verse. Keep it going. Because that's our reality, brothers and sisters. Our life is characterized by one sheer act of grace to the next. Will we get that? Will we be moved by this great word from this great prophet? This apostle who so point us to Jesus, I pray that we will. And someday when our earthly races are run, it won't be hyperbole that says we reached heaven's shore over a bridge that God constructed using one brick of grace upon another. One span of grace upon another. That's what led us home. In between now and then, God continues to build a monument of those bricks, those spans for His glory in our lives. What grace. What a God. What a Savior. Again, I close with this question from the greatest of men. Because He is God. Do you believe this? Do you? you believe that the greatest demonstration of power and glory is that God who needed nothing sent His Son because we needed everything and lived a perfect life in our place and then died in our place because He had none of His own sin. He could take yours. And He suffered all the wrath of God and the punishment of God for you so that there is no wrath left for you. And that that all that is necessary to pass from life into death is to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is Lord, that you are a worthless sinner in need of a great Savior and in need of this grace. And He saves. Not on the basis of your works or your goodness, but on Christ's work and Christ's goodness. What a Savior. What grace. What Plead with you, turn from your sin and turn to that Savior, that living word, and find that it is true that your life is one grace upon another so that you may sing to him for all eternity. Let's pray. Our gracious God and our Father, we come humbled before you because of your word this morning. May we all be the first to race to the front of the line in order to confess that Yes, it is grace, and it's grace upon grace upon grace that has led me to where we are. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you condescended to us. You who need nothing came that we might have everything in you. We praise you for that. 
May we be moved not just merely to hear these words because you're a good man. May we be made to hear them in a way that it affects us that then changes the way we live. And through these words, increase our faith. Increase our love for you. Spirit of God, we pray that you would do your eternal and precious work. Take these words and preach a better sermon to our minds and our hearts than I ever could or any other man ever could. And point us to the one who saves. The one who gave himself. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. We pray this all in your precious name, Jesus.